Wise Guy Radio. Here's your host, Robert Manny. Welcome to Guys Guys Radio. This is your host, Robert Manny, welcoming you to the show where men and women can be at their best and everyone wins. Guys Guys Radio. We've got a very special show for you today. Our special guest, he'll be coming on shortly, is Tony Castro. He's a really wonderful man and a great writer, and he's written three books about Mickey Mantle, who is a mythical, heroic, Homeric type of character that's been part of our lives, particularly if you're a baby boomer. Everybody's heard of Mickey Mantle. And if you're a young kid growing up in New Jersey and New York in the 60s and 70s and 50s, you knew about Mickey Mantle. I remember the first time my mom and I were watching a Yankees game. I had watched, but I was home with my mom one time back in River Ridge, New Jersey. And I remember my mom was ironing and we started watching a Yankees game in the afternoon. And then it became six o'clock and then it became seven o'clock and it just kept going. And we watched an entire 27 inning game together. And uh, my mom became a lifelong Yankee fan from that moment on. She watched almost every game that she could. And I continued to watch and I'm still a huge Yankees fan. Unfortunately, as we know, the season is delayed. And I want to touch base a little bit about that right now because this coronavirus is out there. And just a couple of thoughts. I'm no expert. What I'm doing is my family and I, obviously, we're staying home. We're staying in. We go for a walk every day down here in San Diego. We take a walk along the waterfront. Uh, If we need some supplies, we'll stop into the supermarket and then we come back. Uh, What do we make of all of this? Well, I think that it's not going to stay like this forever. This is as of uh, mid-March. This is just starting to uh, ramp up in terms of everybody kind of getting into the lockdown here. And we don't know what the numbers are going to be with the virus. So we don't know what's coming up ahead. But, you know, eventually it'll go away. Eventually it'll wane. And eventually we'll get back to, uh, I'm not going to say business as usual, but maybe business a little bit changed. But we'll be doing business because... One of the things that makes this country run is business. And after three weeks or so, I think everything's going to be reassessed because people live paycheck to paycheck. People don't have money. Yeah, they're going to send out $1,000 possibly to everybody, but how long is that going to last? Having Withholding a payroll tax for people, that's going to help the people who are working. But how about the people who work for tips or, or aren't working, the people who really need the money? So hopefully we'll be reassessing things in a couple of weeks and uh, maybe things will open up by then, depending on where the numbers are. I think what happened is the pandemic, if you will, was kind of downplayed and diminished back in January, February, when we could have kind of gotten ahead of it. I'm not going to point any fingers. I think it's pretty obvious what went on. And then all of a sudden we're playing catch up and everything gets locked down over three days everything's shut up. You can't, you can't use your, you know, amenities in your buildings. You can't have move-ins and move-outs. Nobody can go to work. There's no court cases. The mail is still being delivered as of today, but this is serious stuff. And uh, it's something that none of us have ever gone through. And we're watching other countries around the world to see what we can learn from the trajectory of this virus. And uh, if people are getting better, how, how fast, how many people are dying from this? Is it people of all ages? I think I just read somebody in New York, an attorney there, you know, 45 years old, healthy. Within three days, he's on a, a, you know, he's on an oxygen thing because of the fibrosis effect 
of this disease. It's not like a typical pneumonia. In pneumonia, you get phlegm and uh, it's a wet cough. This is dry and your kind of lungs start to dry up, if you will, and you can't breathe. And it happens pretty quickly. So we've all got to check in on our loved ones and make sure that people have what they need. I do want to wag a finger a little bit out of, at these people who've gone out and bought up all the toilet paper, which is absurd, number one, and it's greedy, number two. And I blame individuals for just taking all the supplies off the shelves. And I also blame these retailers for not enforcing a uh, specific amount that you're allowed to buy early on. You know, I saw signs go up, oh, you can only buy uh, two or three packages. That was too late. The shelves were bare. And now every day the shelves are bare for toilet paper. And this is ridiculous because this virus has nothing to do with going to the bathroom. It's not about diarrhea or whatever. God forbid it was. We'd have a real problem. But people, share the toilet paper. Don't hoard the toilet paper. If you don't need it, don't buy it. Other people may not have had the opportunity to get some. Maybe some elderly people couldn't go out to the store. They couldn't muscle their way in line and get to the shelves before you did with your five different packages of toilet paper. So let's, let's get a grip on things. Other thing is, you know, make sure you have some food at home. Make sure you have your water. Listen to some podcasts. Read some books. Reassess your life, what you could be doing better, what you're learning from all of this. You can work out at home. You can go out for a walk. You can go out for a run. Nobody's stopping us from doing that yet. But you want to stay safe and you don't want to be touching everything. You want to be taking care of your kids. You want to be schooling your kids if they're home. You just want to be smart about this stuff. And you want to be kind and you want to check in on people who need help. So that's my little soapbox speech on this. Be considerate. Be a guy's guy when it comes to this coronavirus and be kind consider it and look out for other people. And they're telling you, don't go out and you know party in the bars or the restaurants. Not that we can anymore, but listen, you have all these spring breakers having a big party at the beach. Who knows what's going to happen with those people when they come back? Are they going to infect everybody else? I don't know. But let's be smart and let's be considered. So that's my whole thing about the coronavirus. I want to get this out there now. Again, I'm no expert. I'm just like you. I'm doing my thing. And but let's be considered to other people. So Guys Guys Radio, your host, Robert Manny. We're going to be back in a moment with our special guest, Tony Castro. It's Guys Guy Radio. Guys Guys Radio, your host, Robert Manny. As mentioned, I have a very special guest today on the show. I'm a huge Yankees fan. I know I moved to the West Coast recently, but I've been a Yankees fan since uh, I used to go to Old Timers Day with my parents. They used to take me and we saw players like Moose Garin and Elston Howard and Yogi Berra and, of course, Mickey Mantle. And that's who we're going to talk about today. Mantle, the best there ever was. We've got the author, Tony Castro. He is a really special writer. He's an American historian and a Neiman Fellow at Harvard. He's author of seven books, big books, too, including the literary biography, Looking for Hemingway, and landmark civil rights history that uh, hopefully you all know about Chicano Power, which has been hailed as brilliant. Uh, Mantle, the best there ever was, completes Castro's Mickey Mantle Trilogy which includes Mickey Mantle, America's Prodigal Son, uh, the Madge and Mick, Sibling Rivals, Yankee Blood Brothers, 
and this one, which is called Mantle, the best there ever was. Tony Castro, welcome to Guys Guys Radio. I'm so thrilled to have you here. Thanks for being on the show. Thank you for having me. Well, let's start right at the beginning. Obviously, you're a huge fan of Mickey Mantle. What inspired you to write three complete books out of, you know, out of your seven books, three of them are about Mickey Mantle. He must have had a huge impact on your life. I know he's a Homeric type of a figure for all of us who are baby boomers, but what has he meant to you? Probably the same thing he has meant to so many Mantle fans. And I didn't set out to write a, a trilogy or, or even two books about Mantle. Uh, around the time of his death, I was in uh, Dallas, attended uh, the uh, services and then uh, returned to Los Angeles and tried to figure out how to explain Mickey Mantle to my son, uh, who was very young at that time. And I realized then that the biographies that I had grown up with about Mantle were outdated and in some instances not very good. So I happened to have an agent who had a connection to the Mantle family. It was Mike Hamelberg and Mike Mitchell Hamelberg, Mike's father, had actually been the producer of a film called Safe at Home, which came out in 1962. It was a, a, a kid's comedy about with uh, Mantle and Roger Maris uh, taking advantage of their 1961 home run chase of uh, Babe Ruth's record. And uh, the book had come out and is a classic in terms of just baseball movies for, especially for Yankees. And so Mike Mitchell's son and, and I talked about this and I was explaining to him. Uh, the research that I had done just in trying to, uh, to explain it to my kids. And we decided to try to do a book. So this was uh, Mantle, of course, died in 1995. We started playing with the book idea shortly after that. And the book was published in 2002. That was Mickey Mantle, America's Prodigal Son. Uh, it was a book that had, uh, oh, God, uh, uh, Mike said, write as much as you want to on it. And I wrote a 2,000-word book, a manuscript. Wow. And of course, that's awfully long for a baseball yep. book. I think it was narrowed down, winnowed down to about uh, 400 words and, uh, you know, about uh, uh, 350 pages, I think, uh, the, the size of the book. And I had a tremendous amount of material that wasn't used into that. I had no idea of what I was going to do with it. And then a couple of things happened subsequent to that that led to the Dimage and Mick book that came out in 2016, and then, of course, uh, uh, this book, Mantle, the Best There Ever Was, which came out uh, last year. So and, it wasn't, uh, to answer your, uh, your question, mm -hmm. it wasn't my intention to do a trilogy on Mantle. It just so happened that that's the way it broke down, and I was able to use a lot of the material that hadn't been used in the first book, plus uh, new material that came, came along that helped produce uh, this last book. Well, I guess it is so much to Mantle that transcends being just a ball player, as you as you know, and you were are uh, sharing with your family in that uh, he was a, a, a character who came to us after World War II. Um, he took uh, a, after uh, DiMaggio and the Yankee uh, center field lineage. Um, he was a tragic hero in a way in that he was so super talented, yet he got injured in his rookie year. And what was amazing is that, as you describe in the book, he was actually trying to help out Joe DiMaggio by running in to get a fly. And DiMaggio waved him off and he got his spike caught and drained and that ripped up his knee. And, of course, uh, the, the medical field wasn't as adept as they were now in terms of fixing that. And that really impacted the rest of his career. So, uh, 
beyond that, talk to us, Tony, about what, what was the myth, what's the mythology around Mickey Mantle uh, beyond what I said? I hope I didn't preclude any of that stuff. No, yeah, well, I mean, the mythology around baseball and about baseball players uh, goes back to the start of the modern era or even before the modern era, the days of Ty Cobb, the Garrick, and the Babe. And uh, mythology is, is crucial to baseball as statistics. And so the mythology that arose around Mickey Mantle, uh, like most myths, uh, was not real. I mean, we we create these myths, we create these mortal gods to help us get through life, to help us understand uh, situations, not just in politics, but in uh, the whole field of entertainment and politics and, and whatever else. I mean, the idea of George Washington and some of the mythology that grew up around George Washington or Abraham mm-hmm. Lincoln, all of these things are, were created by their societies to deal with that particular individual, especially when the individual isn't that well known. And at that time, in the early 50s, in 1951, when Mantle was a rookie, uh, we didn't have what we have today, not only the 24-hour news cycle, but blogs, uh, social media. Mm-hmm. None of that was available. Uh, the discussions that went on in terms of baseball were among people themselves, at the ballparks, at bars, among families, among friends, at the water cooler. This is, in fact, this, this, uh, these kinds of discussions were what created the whole term, water cooler discussion, what went on uh, the next morning after the previous night's game or games or whatever else that happened the, the night before. So there was this tremendous mythology. To give you one example was the relationship between DiMaggio and Mantle. And as I dug more into this uh, into that relationship for that first book, a lot of things came out, and it was a, it wasn't the way it was created by the news media at that time, which seemed to cast DiMaggio against Mantle. You know, the good guy against the bad guy, the old mm-hmm. uh, unsentimental uh, pro DiMaggio in '51, you know, playing his last year, and then the blonde-haired, uh, blue-eyed uh, young rookie uh, straight out of Oklahoma. DiMaggio, the guy who uh, sports writers were, had a difficult time approaching DiMaggio. DiMaggio was not forthcoming with uh, comments, with talk or whatever. And Mantle, early in his career, was. He was a shy kid, but he was at the Mickey Mantle, uh, the slurry-worded uh, uh, Mickey Mantle of later years with the media. In that first year, 1951, with Casey Stengel especially creating this myth about Mantle being the next Ruth, being the next DiMaggio, uh, being potentially better than those. Uh, it created this this myth that arose about Mantle that he was going to be uh, the person around whom baseball would center its conversations for the future. Of course, he, he wasn't. No player could, uh, could ever be. But uh, that was part of it. And so uh, the DiMaggio-Mantle mythology, the creation of this feud, which didn't really exist, not the way it's been uh, written about and uh, uh, done in things like 61, the the, the Billy Crystal movie of uh, 2001, I guess it was. Uh, these things weren't real. It was like Hollywood's creation of whatever it chooses to do and fitting in, uh, generally, you know, all fitting into the of the one-liner, you know, this is loosely based on a true story. 
you you had access to Mickey Mantle personally, which is amazing, as well as his wife. And you know, and you tell tell a great story about how you met him the first time, and you were nervous, and you meet him at a at a bar, and he's like playing with the peanuts and stuff. And he, as he keeps uh, drinking uh, beers, he keeps the empty glasses on the table, and it became a discussion that you had to work into some type of article. Tell us about what your personal take was on Mickey Mantle, the human being. I was a young reporter in Dallas in 1970. I was like 21, 22, uh, having graduated from Baylor um, in the big city. I'm reporting on, uh, you know, general assignments, what a young reporter does. And I knew that Mantle lived there. He was a year and a half or so out of retirement. He had retired in, in 68. And uh, I thought he would be a hard person to get to. I didn't think there would be any interest. There wasn't because Mantle had pretty much worn out his welcome in Dallas by by this period of time, by 1970. Um uh, when I mentioned the surliness that he had with reporters, you know, he, uh, uh, cussing them out, being unfriendly, being, uh, rude to them. A lot of this because of his drinking that was happening a lot of times. But anyway, in 1970, I wanted to, uh, I wanted to meet Man. I wanted to, to see about doing a story on him. And I called several times. Uh, finally got a hold of him. He was as rude to me as he was to any other reporter, I guess, at that time, and finally agreed to meet me at this uh, uh, this little restaurant in the Turtle Creek area of Dallas. And he agreed to meet me because of golf. I told him I wanted to do a piece for Golf Magazine about Mickey Mantle's golf game. Mantle was the consummate golfer. Uh, he was a guy who, I mean, Yoki Berra has once said that if Mantle hadn't been a baseball player, he probably would have loved to have been a professional golfer. Uh, Mantle wasn't the great golfer that some of his fans made him out to be, but he wasn't a bad golfer. And what made him stand out was his driving ability. He could drive a golf ball as far as he could hit a baseball further. Wow. Even. And you, you golfed with him, Tony, right? I did. I did. That first interview didn't go well. The first meeting didn't go off well. Uh, I go into the book. In the book, I go into how... Uh, that happened. Uh, he happened to be a big drinker. He was already drunk when he showed up at the restaurant. I happened to be the son of of a man who was a big drinker. My dad, uh, after World War II, coming back from the, uh, from Europe, uh, got into the bottle quite heavily. Uh, a lot of men did. Uh, my two or three uncles that I grew up around uh, were the same way. And some of the times they were happy drunks. A lot of the times they were unhappy, angry drunks. And I grew up around this. And I, after a while, you realize there's a particular way of handling drunks. It's probably easier for a young guy than it is for a, for their daughters from everything I've uh, learned in discussions with people in the same kind of backgrounds. And so I knew how to handle, uh, felt I knew how to handle Mantle's drunkenness you know you deal with mm -hmm. them like a big top let them spin out of control and then you do whatever you can you know trying to direct them in, in, in what way and it accounted for the fact that uh Mendel didn't have many friends in the 25 some odd years that he lived in houston after his retirement the number of friends that he had in houston and dallas i'm sorry he had very few friends there very few close friends uh, in part because he had a difficult time dealing with people, dealing with other men outside of a baseball situation. 
and also because uh, uh, a lot of people respect people's privacy. And so, you know, they'd see Mantle at a restaurant. Uh, it was a lot of them left him alone, let's say. Many of them approached him asking for an autograph, and that's when sometimes if you got the bad Mickey Mantle, it just it just went downhill for, uh, as far as your opinion had been from that. Because he could be quite rude. Mm-hmm. So when I say, you know, I befriended Mantle, it was under those circumstances, knowing that what you're really dealing with is someone who uh, has a difficult time getting golf partners. I, I played at his golf club, uh, Preston Trail, uh, there in Dallas on uh, Preston uh, Road, North Preston Road. Mainly mm-hmm. because I was living in that area at that time, and he, I was not a bad golfer. And uh, uh, I could take, I was working at an afternoon newspaper, which meant you got in there like at five thirty, six o'clock in the morning, and by one or two in the afternoon, you could leave and still get in, especially in the spring and the summer of uh, Texas weather, get in a full 18 holes. So did you uh, have many um, experiences uh, and contact with Mantle when he was sober? And if so, what type of person was he beneath all of that? Because, you know, by the time you had met him, he was already pretty much in the uh, you know, he had an issue with alcohol, let's face it. Uh, he had an so, issue with alcohol, and it began about 11 o'clock every morning. Mm-hmm. He had this, uh, everybody knows the stories about his uh, favorite drink in the days of, uh, of that period. And it was uh, a play on Wheaties, the Breakfast of Champions. Mm-hmm. He had uh, a drink uh, that he varied from time to time and, and place to place, but he called it the Breakfast of Champions. Wow. And he would have one of these at 10.30, 11 o'clock in the morning, and he would have two more, and by noon, by one o'clock, uh, he was well into uh, being drunk, and oftentimes played golf this way. I mean, you know, there are a number of people who, uh, over the years, have gone about their lives uh, uh, being functioning alcoholics. Yeah, 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 functioning alcoholics. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Well, let's let's. Uh Let's let's pivot a little bit because uh, I, you were very honest in how you handled his. Uh, you know, the, the the book is not putting Mantle up on a pedestal. You portray him as a human being, as a man with his uh, positive aspects and his flaws. Let's talk about his physical tools because, again, the name of the book is Mantle. The best there ever was. Our special guest on Guys Guys Radio, Tony Castro. So, as best you make the argument, and I think it's very compelling as he's the best there ever was, I think with a caveat, and correct me if I'm wrong, Tony, that's if he did not get uh, injured his rookie season, which really put a uh, damper on his career because he had to deal with his knee issues. But he had all the tools. He had the speed. He had the power. He was a switch hitter. He started as an infielder. He went out to center field, and he hit mammoth home runs and drove in runs, and he was super clutch. So take it from me from there, Tony. Well, 1957, this will get us into it in a, a, a very unusual way. Most Mantle fans, and especially if you grew up at that time, in 1957, most Mantle fans were disappointed with that season because it followed the great 1956 season, the Triple Crown season. And 1957, Mantle had a very good year by most standards at that time. Uh, he hit a little over 300. He hit, uh, he didn't, hit anywhere close to the home runs he'd hit the year before. And uh, uh, he actually he hit uh, 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 his highest batting average, but he was beaten out in the batting race by Ted Williams, mm-hmm. uh, of all people. And so a, a lot of people, I, m- I remember at that time, it was like, oh, God, you know, maybe next year, especially since in 57 the Yankees didn't win the World Series. 
and it wasn't until most recently that, uh, you know, in the era of sabermetrics and the new analytics of, of uh, looking at baseball, that baseball nerds have uncovered this whole uh, notion that 1957 was actually one of the greatest seasons produced by any baseball player, by any hitter. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, if you look at it and compare it using the modern-day analytics uh, looking at ball players, war especially, the wins above replacement, you see that 1956 and 1957 are the two greatest seasons for any baseball player other than Babe Ruth and two of his greatest seasons. Mm-hmm. And so uh, you start from there and you think, oh my God, you know, 57, that was the year most of us have, had written off up until you start looking at what the nerds have produced, these uh, these statistics that look at baseball in an entirely different way. Because as you know, growing up as a baby boomer, in our era, the only way anyone ever looked at baseball players, especially hitters, was the three major categories. Right. Batting average, home runs, RBIs. I mean, that's where the whole idea of the triple crown came into. How would you compare uh, Mantle with, uh, you know, Ted Williams, let's say? Uh, let me th- I'll throw a couple of names at you because when people have the arguments about who's the greatest ever, you hear Willie Mays, you hear Ted Williams, you hear Mickey Mantle, you hear Babe Ruth, you hear DiMaggio. Let's, let me start with uh, the one that I, I, when I would have the argument with people about it, they'd say, well, Ted Williams, the greatest hit- hitter ever. What's your response to that? I think that, he probably was. I think just pure hitter, someone who, if you needed to have, you know, everybody always says, you know, if I needed somebody to go to bat playing for my life or my family, uh, and they usually, you know, pick somebody like maybe a Mickey Mantle, I think I would pick a, a Ted Williams. If I needed a hit, I think I would pick uh, Ted Williams or Tony Gwynn. Mm-hmm. Just, to, just to get a hit. Or maybe Pete Rose. Okay. I'm not saying uh, that they were the greatest hitters. I'm just saying if I needed a hit, you know, these were people that understood baseball and understood how to get a ball in play and, and produce. I mean, Ted Williams uh, uh, hit a home run in his last at-bat. Ted Williams, at, uh, uh-huh. as he approached 40, hit uh, uh, 388. That's oh, amazing, amazing. So you mentioned the MVP awards that Mantle made, uh, won and said there was a couple that maybe, and maybe I got this wrong, but I think there was two of them that were kind of questionable. One was when Yogi won, and Yogi's statistics were, you know, far removed from where Mantle was in that season. And then also I think another one, Brooks Robinson won. Could you just talk about those two seasons? Well, there were seasons when, uh, look, uh, who who decides on the MVPs? Baseball writers. So much of this is a popularity contest. And the best example on, on this is that after the 1955 season, when Yogi, I guess, I think it was 55 that Yogi was the MVP. And at the beginning of that season, Mickey, uh, there's a story that's well known of Mickey going to one of the Yankee, uh, uh, publicists and talking to him about, look, you know, what does somebody have to do to be considered for this? And, uh, he was given a lesson on dealing with writers, because in those seasons, uh, 52, 53, 54, that was when Mantle's uh, negative attitude toward the media had, you know, just really come into into play. And Mantle wasn't the very popular player that he became, especially after 56, uh, both with fans and the media. And he was told, look, you know, they're, they're the ones that select this. And you need to be a 
better, not only team representative, but a representative of yourself in dealing right. with the media. Right. It's politics. And so yeah. that, and, and, and so that, but the politics involved there. I mean, it, it, it's the uh, same way is true today, even in Hall of Fame. I mean, Derek Jeter doesn't get in as a unanimous yeah. vote. I mean, who do you blame that on? You blame that on the system that just has been in place right. because early in our, uh, early in the 20th century, what was the most powerful tool out there, the most powerful medium out there were newspapers, not only in politics, but in, right. in sports. And so sports writers became the place, uh, I mean, they, they became the, the demigods. Mm-hmm. Of deciding who was in the Hall of Fame and who wasn't, of deciding who uh, uh, who was well liked and who wasn't, who was MVP and who wasn't. Let's talk a little bit about some of the father figures for Mantle. Uh, he had his own father, Mutt, I believe his name was, and he was pretty tough on Mantle. And then he had also, uh, I guess, Casey Stengel could be considered as kind of a father figure wannabe for Mantle, but they had kind of a strained relationship. Um, exemplified by the fact that uh, when Stengel was asked to list his, you know, all-time greatest team, he did not, of all players, not just Yankees, he did not include Mantle, and that was a, a sore point. But what were those two relationships like for Mantle, and how did it affect him, his dad, Mutt, and then Casey Stengel as his manager? Well, being a Yankee fan, you know how Stengel is regarded. Uh, and in some ways, all of that came to be because he was there at a time when the Yankees had these incredible teams that were able to go to the World Series or, uh, you know, year after year. There were no playoffs at the time. You won uh, the American League and you automatically were in the World Series. They did quite well. Was it all Casey Stengel's uh, doing? I happen to be one of those who believes it was. If you could have had uh, any manager, you know, you could have had Tony Castro, Robert Manny, Mm-hmm. managing the Yankees of that period, and they would have probably done pretty much the same thing. Right. I don't mean to demean the role of managers in baseball, but there's uh, any number of people who will tell you that baseball managers are probably responsible for a dozen wins alone every season, or only a dozen wins. And, you know, and, and especially nowadays when you've had these... Uh, these situations where, you know, you how often do you have a manager thrown out? I mean, it's not that often, but how often do you have a manager thrown out and the person who winds up being the acting manager in that game wins the game? Right. Mm-hmm. And so with Mantle and, uh, and Casey Stingle, Stingle wanted to have this creation attributed to him that here, here was this guy because Mantle, Casey took over a team that already had the greatest player of that era, Joe DiMaggio. So the DiMaggio teams, I, I, I've always spoken, Stengel was tough on, tougher on DiMaggio than he was on Mantle. And he was tough on DiMaggio because he he didn't like the fact that DiMaggio didn't curtsy, you know, figuratively right. to him. And I think he was glad to see DiMaggio playing his last season there in 1951. And so here comes this rookie that uh, if any manager today or any coach today in any sport were to say, what if, uh, what if Bill Belichick today and, you know, here with uh, mm-hmm. uh, Brady now gone and it all falling upon a, a, uh, a, a new quarterback, 
What if he were to say about this quarterback, you know, he will be greater than Brady. He will be greater than John United. He will be the greatest uh, quarterback to play the game, and he will make you forget about it, uh, blah, blah, blah. Well, any manager or coach who would say something like that about any athlete, especially one replacing uh, uh, someone like a DiMaggio at that period, would be laughed at. And his management uh, team would probably say, you know, cool it. But Casey was allowed to go the entire spring training building up Mantle in a way in 1951 when he was 19 years old and a rookie. When they didn't do this with Mike Trout. They just still don't even do it with Mike Trout. So these tremendous expectations that were placed on Mantle that eventually caused Mantle there in those in uh, the, the first two months of that season to slowly um, uh, diminish his own self-confidence and led to him being dem- demoted to to the minors there in 1951. Right. Casey was his own. That's like. That's like being a father and saying, my kid's going to be the next, uh, you know, the, the next president or whatever. Yeah, next president or, or any expectation. When I was, I'll tell you a silly story. When I coached Little League uh, with my kids back in, uh, in, in their time, uh, and they were, uh, the oldest one was 11 and 12 uh, when he was playing Little League and was doing quite well. There was this father of a little kid who was actually a pretty good little ball player. And one day he shows up at practice with a T-shirt, a, a blue T-shirt with gold on it, the UCLA uh, colors. And it said, the future uh, Pac-10 shortstop of the UCLA Bruins. <laughs> no pressure. And it was like, uh, no pressure. Yeah, <laughs> no pressure. And the kid was small. I mean, the, the kid... Uh, uh, I've seen him recently. He's an adult. He's about the size. I don't think he's as big as Pee Wee Reese there ever was in his day. Hey, day. But how does a parent do this to a son to say, right. you know, he's going to be the greatest? It, 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 what, and what would society say about a parent who did this? Right. Well, this is what. Uh, this is how the mantle single relationship began in 1951. And it not got no better after that because in 1952, Mantle's father, Mutt Mantle, dies. Right. He died in uh, early in that uh, season. I it's uh, May or uh, I think it was late May of uh, 52 that he died. And again, Stingle tried to be there for Mantle. Mantle didn't need any of that. Mantle mm-hmm. wouldn't change any of the things that his father taught him to do. You know, to swing from the heels, both on the right side and the left side. And Casey tried to get that changed for years, you know, going into the 50s. Um, One of them to swing down as so, the ball, right? Well, not so much swing down the ball. Swing, when I say swing from the heels, I mean, to, in other words, you're, to be a power hitter. Right. Uh, and, and there were times when Casey wanted him to, to cut back on that swing. Mm-hmm. And he just wasn't going to do that. And, and the silliness of it is that, you know, Mantle wound up getting sent down because of his high strikeout total. For, for that year in 51, uh, uh, during the time he was at the, in, with the Yankees, was really negligible when you consider that nowadays you have players who on an annual basis strike out 150 to close to 200 times a year. 
And nobody says much about that. It's Guys Guys Radio. Your host, Robert Manny, our very special guest, Tony Castro. His book, uh, his third book about Mickey Mantle is called Mantle, The Best There Ever Was. Uh, a couple of uh, other relationships that I'd like to just touch on briefly. Uh, the obvious one, Mantle and Maris, 1961. They're both going. They're shooting for the home run mark uh, held by Babe Ruth at 60. They're both on their way in August. Mantle pulls a groin, I believe, and ends up with 54. Maris hits 61. I remember as a kid, everybody, we're all pulling for Mantle, and Maris is kind of like this, I don't want to say he's a polarizing figure. We rooted for him because he's a Yankee, and he had beautiful swing and great home runs and a lot of power, but he just wasn't that charismatic, mythical character that Mickey Mantle was to us kids growing up in New Jersey. Talk to us about their relationship, because some people think it's a rivalry. From reading your book and some movies I've seen, it seems like they were like blood brothers. I'm working on a book about uh, Mantle and uh, Maris right now. Actually, it's more about Maris. And you're right. I mean, I, I, I don't see it as a rivalry at all. And I, again, we go back to the news media, to sports writers and create, you know, sports writers at that time had to do stories. They had not only um, game stories, but stories that added to that day after day, 154 uh, games uh, every summer. And they had to add more to, to it than what the competitors had, especially in New York where you had, uh, at one point, I think there were close to a dozen newspapers, daily newspapers in, in New York City. So you had this competition, who's going to have more there? And things were created, things were added to it, things, you know, something would, might be said and uh, it was placed in a different kind of context than it was uh, actually said or meant to be. But it was part of that whole uh, gotcha kind of mentality that was there with the media at that time. So the Mantle-Maris rift wasn't what has been seen out there. I'll give you a great story on this. When Maris died, Mantle, and he, his burial was like a, was just a horrendously cold uh, winter day up in uh, North Dakota. Among the people that show up is Mickey Mantle. And he mm -hmm. cries during the entire, and he's not drunk. You know, Mantle told me he hadn't been drunk, uh, hadn't been drinking, uh, because uh, he, he just didn't want to show himself up at Roger's funeral. But he was there and he was, uh, he was having a difficult time controlling it. Now, Mantle's feeling on, Man, uh, on Maris was that he wished he could have been the father to his kids that Roger Maris was to his. Right. He wished he could have been the, the husband to Merlin that Roger was to his wife. Uh, that's right there. Uh, the, speaks volumes for how different the two men were. You know, Maris was this consummate family man who had a difficult time uh, being away from his family uh, for those four or five months during the, you know, the height of the baseball season. And Mantle uh, loved that, especially since he had girlfriends in every ball uh, park, every major league city he went to. How about uh, Billy Martin? To me, you know, Billy Martin's a polarizing figure. He was a he was a great player. Um, he was a you know a running buddy with Mickey Mantle, and Mantle kind of looked up to him. And uh, as manager of the, the Yankees, he he got championships. I, I was a Reggie Jackson fan. I knew he could be kind of a polarizing character himself. I didn't like all that bickering that was on the team, but the team was so fun to watch. That that, that version of the Yankees. Tell us about uh, Billy Martin and Billy Martin's relationship with Mickey Mantle and how it impacted him 
Was he an enabler? Was he a good influence? What, what, what do you think, Tony? I think he was a good influence. I mean, Mantle, I mean, this is not only in, in my books, but other uh, biographies of Mantle. Billy, having had more experience and being a better baseball person, knowing baseball better than, yeah, definitely. than Mickey did, uh, oftentimes, I mean, Mantle uh, made those secrets that he would steal bases based not upon any signals that were given to him, not upon anything Casey Stengel might have said to him, but looking into the dugout and getting signals from Billy Martin. Mm-hmm. Amazing. You know, Billy telling him, you know, when to steal, when... Manuel said, you know, a lot of times he just didn't know about these things. His dad had taught him how to hit, how to hit for power, uh, how to drive a ball. His father had never taught him uh, the intricacies of, uh, of the game, uh, uh, not even being a very good shortstop. Mm-hmm. Let's let's go into some, if you don't mind. Um, let's talk about some other baseball issues because you're an expert, and I'd love for our listeners to get your perspective on a couple of things. What do you think about steroid era players getting into the Hall of Fame? Yes or no? Ah, I think yes. You. No, I mean uh, the reason I say <laughs> I mean, I'm hesitant on it is just I mean when you say steroid era players, I mean you're thinking about people like. Clemens, who I think was one of the all-time great players. Right, right. You're talking Barry about Bonds. Uh, Bonds, who probably could have been, uh, he probably would have only had maybe 50 to 75 fewer home runs had he never uh, right. touched the steroid. Right. I mean, that, that's a tragedy of these people like that. Same way with A-Rod. Yeah. You know, I, it, it, it's, it's just a tragedy about what happened there. And if you're going to, if you, look, uh, neither you or I were born yesterday, or maybe we were. I don't know. Sometimes <laughs> I wonder about myself. But you can't tell me that they were the only. If, if we're talking about a steroid right. era, you can't tell me that they were the only players who were doing this. They just happened to get caught. Yep. How about uh, uh, Pete Rose? Of, uh, well, Pete Rose definitely should be in the Hall of Fame. I mean, again, you go back to. Oh God! I mean, you have a you have a system that's in place right now, where after what the Astros did last year, I mean, how do you justify uh, not taking a World Series championship away from them, and at the same time condemning people who like Bonds, Clemens, uh, McGuire, uh, Pete Rose? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, with Pete, you know, go ahead. Go ahead, Tony. I'm sorry. No, I mean, uh, I got to know Pete out here, not through actual baseball with Pete, but with Pete's son. I coached Pete's uh, youngest son, Tyler Rose, along with my oldest son, uh, Trey. And we had some great little league and travel teams together. And so uh, I, I got to know Rose in ways that you never get to know a, a player, and that is their family. And uh, the way they handle uh, and, and care for their family and their kids. And I got an entirely different view of, of Pete than, than I would have just as a, a ball, as a, a follower of ball players. Mm-hmm. And so I have a, a fondness for Pete that goes beyond, uh, uh, I, I was never a huge Pete Rose fan as a player, uh, simply because, you know, he played for the Reds and, right. and the National League and, and I just didn't follow them. Uh, 
but I think that you should be given other types of consideration given given his accomplishments, given his accomplishments before he bet uh, or, or was caught betting or, 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 or that we had proof of his betting. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like it's like anything else in law and order. Uh, you go after certain people for a number of different reasons and you don't uh, go after other players and you allow them to skate. Mm-hmm. Let's talk a little bit about, since we've got a couple more minutes, the Astros, uh, you know, the asterisk scandal. And then the to me, what's interesting, I think they should just declare no champion in 2017. Um, I think players should have been uh, suspended, but I guess that was part of the deal. So not my, you know, that's, that's the commissioner's call. I don't, I'm not really crazy about this commissioner and his all these new rules he wants to come up with. But the other thing, the other shoe hasn't dropped yet where – he delayed the uh, decision on the Red Sox. We haven't heard. Okay, well, what about the Red Sox in 2018? What's your thoughts on all of this stuff, Tony? I, I think the credibility of the commissioner's office and, in turn, the credibility of, of uh, baseball as we've known it in recent uh, years has dropped a great deal. Uh, I've never been real impressed with many of the commissioners. I, in some ways, I wish George uh, W. Bush had become commissioner even after he became president of the United mm-hmm. States. I mean, Bush has a much better, uh, we may laugh at some of the silliness of the George Bush years and some of the things he said, but his smarts as a baseball man, uh, I, I, I was once doing a book, in fact, titled The Baseball Presidency of George W. Bush. Uh, this was like in, <laughs> it was 1999, 2000, and probably would have done this book had it not been for 9-11. Just ruined everything. Right. I mean, 9-11 turned George Bush from kind of a, a a light-hearted figure into a real president. Like him or not. Disagree with his policies or not, his decisions. It changed, it changed the man. And afterwards, I think afterwards he would have been a great commissioner. It, uh, it couldn't be any worse than, uh, than the commissioners we've had of baseball, with the exception of maybe, uh, Peter Uberhoff. Mm-hmm. Oh, I prefer personally if he would have been baseball commissioner instead of president, but that's that's another story. So, what do you think is going to happen? What do you think is going to happen with the Red Sox? I think some kind of uh, uh, well, I I don't think it'll be anything close to what the Astros have gotten or should have gotten. I think it will be minor. I think the fact that the Ast that the Red Sox took some uh, action. Uh, you know, and getting rid of the manager and uh, and taking some other steps helps out. But as the as what's happened with the Astros goes to show, you know, there's no real accountability beyond that. I mean, the Astros did what they really had to do, and they, in many ways, I think the, the Astros' ownership the day after this was announced, or the day that this was announced, uh, did more uh, than the commissioner himself. And I mean, what's silly about this is that. How can you not remove the Astros, the, not the Astros, but declare a vacant championship there on the one hand? How can you have one uh, group of people, one sport do that, and another one, a college sport, take a Heisman Trophy away from Reggie Bush? That's right. Who did nothing to cheat on the field. Right. Mm-hmm. Okay, last question. And then we got to wrap. Uh, Chicano Power. I want the reason I ask this is that's your seminal book and that's a very important book. Tell our listeners what it's about and why it's important. Chicano Power was a book about 
Um, I mean, today we hear a lot about Latinos, Latino voters, how Latino voters have, uh, uh, you know, fueled uh, Bernie Sanders' uh, victory mm-hmm. in the California primary here, uh, how in, in Nevada. The Latino vote in this country has become very important in democratic politics. How important it's going to be in national politics in this coming election uh, is up in the air because it's not a monolithic vote. I mean, your Mexican-Americans right. in the Southwest are going to be vote differently than your Cuban-Americans in Florida right, right. Uh, or your uh, Puerto Ricans either in Puerto Rico, which it, all of them are uh, American citizens, we might tell the, mm-hmm. the, the president of the United States, or the Cuban, right. the uh, Puerto Ricans in uh, in New York. Right. So there's this great giant block of voters and population, the second largest, uh, I mean, the largest population far outnumbering uh, African-Americans in this country. It's the largest ethnic group in America today. So Chicano is a an expression that the activists gave to themselves during the 60s that has some kind of a historical uh, significance, which is debated uh, depending on your point of view. But that's where the title comes from, you know, Chicano, um, Got it. referring to these activists at that time. Okay. Guys, Guys Radio, our special guest has been the amazing Tony Castro. Uh, his book, his latest book is Mantle, the best there ever was. He has a lot, uh, he has seven other uh, books, and I suggest you check them out. Tony, could you please tell our listeners uh, where they can find out more about you and your books? Well, our website is TonyCastro.com. And uh, if you go to it, uh, it will link you to uh, my Amazon book uh, page. Or if you're just interested in the Mantle book, you can go to uh, MickeyMantle.live, and that takes you right to the Amazon uh, page about the Mantle book, and you can order it directly from there. You can also order it uh, TonyCastroBooks.com, which has uh, all those books, uh, and uh, has uh, and you can get them signed at, at that place, especially right now because I know the Los Angeles Times Book Festival that we were going to have here in, uh, next month has been canceled or moved back until the fall. And uh, I would imagine other book festivals this summer and right. book promotions are, are all put aside until this coronavirus uh, scare uh, or it. coronavirus yeah. right. situation uh, is over. Okay. Well, listen, terrific job. A pleasure to meet you and honor to have you on the show, Tony. You're a true guys guy. Tony Castro on Guys Guys Radio. Thank you, Tony. Thank you, Robert. It's Guys Guy Radio. Okay. That was a terrific interview with Tony Castro. What a, what a wonderful man. Humble guy prolific, terrific writer. And uh, we learned a lot about our heroes and about people like Mickey Mantle, who if you grew up in the 60s or 70s even, and you remember watching the Yankees, a dynasty Yankee from that, that, that version of the dynasty Yankees, uh, he was just an amazing mythic, uh, bigger than life character. And we saw his kind of fall from grace, if you will, over the years. And he succumbed to alcoholism and he passed away in the, in the 90s, I believe. But Mickey Mantle, I guess uh, the learning is really that 
we can enjoy our sports heroes, if you will, but the real heroes are, you know, regular human beings, people like our family members, our, our own dads, hopefully, and our, our moms and our, our friends and, and people who just do really good things for other people. The entertainment factor of sports is fantastic, but let's, let's not be worshiping sports figures and let's see them uh, and empathize with these sports figures who are on so much under the microscope of the public eye that, you know, their frailties, their, their humanness uh, becomes uh, so open and they become so vulnerable and sometimes they, they fall victim to all of their success. So something to be learned there. Guys, Guys Radio, we're on KCAA Radio every Wednesday evening at 8 p.m. Pacific Time, 102.3, 106.5 FM, 10.50 a.m. The show rebroadcasts every Sunday at 2 p.m. So if you're cruising down the 5 or on the 101 or the 163 or the 8 and you want to listen to something, something different, something that will hopefully help you think and feel and act, then Guys Guys Radio is for you. I'm not saying you're going to totally vibe and take the advice of all the experts I bring on the show, but you will learn something and then you can determine how you want to deploy that, if at all, in your life. So Guys Guys Radio. The podcast drops worldwide every Thursday. Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Spreaker, Stitcher, TuneIn, Blog Talk Radio, CastBox, KCA, you can stream the show, or also my website, robertmanny.com. We've got over 300 blogs there, lots of information about all things Guy's Guy, including the source material for everything Guy's Guy, my novel, The Guy's Guy's Guide to Love. You can pick it up on Amazon or wherever you uh, buy your books, and you can get the digital format or you can get a physical copy. It's been called The Mail successor to Sex in the City. It's a rom-com about two dudes in advertising competing for love, sex, power, and money in New York City back in the year 2008. A long time ago, it seems now with everything going on. So Guys Guys Radio, I'm also all over social media. You can catch me on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, wherever you consume your social media. I know a lot of people are kind of homebound these days, so it's a perfect time to check out your favorite podcasts, to read a book, to really reassess things. And when we get back out there to savor every moment of our lives and learn from every minute and create the lives we want every step of the way. So Guys Guys Radio, thanks so much for being with me. I really appreciate all my listeners and all my guests. If you want to support the show, please rate us, review us, and subscribe on iTunes slash Apple Podcast Guys Guys Radio. So we'll be back again next week with a new show. Thank you so much. And as I always like to say, guys, guys, finish first. Finish first.